as ever, you know, there's a, there's a certain, we speak with a, from a position of a certain generalistic approach. <laughs> as ever, we with, do not yeah, have opinions about these things. Without claiming to have any kind of expert knowledge, you know. That's so. it. We have opinions, we just don't have expert knowledge. Yeah. We, you're not coming to us <laughs> We to just understand. can't substantiate those opinions, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. we have to substantiate our opinions? What? <laughs> it's the 21st century. Nobody has to substantiate their opinions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I heard um, somebody make the distinction recently between being academic and being scholarly. And they were like, you don't need to be an academic to be scholarly. And I was like, oh, fuck, now I have to be scholarly. <laughs> I was like, I was using that as an excuse to not be scholarly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we, we make an effort to be academic without being particularly scholarly. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You actually might be right about that. <laughs> All the pretensions of academia without... Yeah, the, exactly. Any of the rigor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um... Well, what are you going to do? <laughs> Dan, the news of the hour. Um, mm. Your king has cancer. Have you heard yes, it? Yeah. I saw. Yes. Yeah, shame. Yes. Very, sad, very, very sad. Very sad. Very uh, quick. Wishing, uh, wishing, wishing the king of... <laughs> quick recovery you know swift recovery from auxiliary statements you know yeah. from our family prayers, to yours and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yes you yeah i did the only i mean obviously a guy's dying that's sad whatever i did want to see him meet trump i thought that would be very funny if trump mm. wins which would suck it would be incredibly funny to see trump <laughs> meet him but it might even be more funny to see trump meet who uh who would be king after him the bold william? son william, william. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that would be very funny and if so who's uh, i don't care i was gonna ask who's king after him is it henry harry uh whatever no whatever his oldest son is called well no i mean after him no after whatever son. william's son is called oh really it doesn't yeah. just go to the brother oh okay yeah. No, that... <laughs> I don't know. Come on, Jack. You understand how hereditary <laughs> monarchies work. <laughs> I guess I do. Jeez. Yeah, but that kid's like six. What does he know? Well, oh. yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. Okay. Well, that, I mean, yeah. Then we, then, then, then we get into like, um, yeah, we get into like Richard the Third territory there. And uh, like yes, we don't want to go there. We don't want to go there. I, um, uh, with my partner, when around the time we first started dating, I. I'm exaggerating this a bit, but I made two demands. I said, one is that you'll never uh, force me to do karaoke because I really don't like karaoke. And the second one was if we ever have kids, we absolutely cannot raise them in the South of England because I don't want them walking around with like, oh, mummy, like little, like funny little <laughs> accents. And I just feel like the kid, the king's grandson, so his son's son is just the epitome of what I assume all English children are because he has like the little suit and the like, you know, like spiffy little haircut. And he's like, mom father the prince of whatever it's just like oh this is this is this is an accent that we need to do away with once we have socialism this is yeah. this is no good when i went to the south this is what i assumed the south of england was like it's just like <laughs> everybody's a toff you know yeah. and it is well it is well known if you if you're if you're if you do have children that are born in the south yeah. of england then yeah they do come out <laughs> wearing a flat cap and a monocle and, <laughs> yeah, so. yeah beware beware yeah. yeah, exactly. What are you going to yeah. do? I remember the first day that I was here, I got off the plane and I was taking the train out here and I was really jet lagged and really tired. And I'd never been to England. Like I'd never been to Europe before. And I was just like, whoa, like England, huh? this is pretty crazy. And I heard this voice behind me that literally was like, mommy, can you help me open this? And I turned around and it was like this six-year-old kid and he was literally wearing a three-piece suit. And I was just like, where am I? I was just like, made what it, time warp have it. I entered into? 
Yeah, you accidentally stumbled across the one family that legitimately does live in a castle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, this is your duke, peasant. You know, prostrate yourself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. you gonna do? And it was at that point you decided to stay. Yeah, I was like, you know what? This is my kind of place. This is pretty good, <laughs> if you ask me. Um, well, I was hoping I would come up one of us would come up with like some good bants for the beginning of this show, mm. mainly because I, we read nine pages <laughs> for, this, for this week, which is an all time mm-hmm. low, I believe. Uh, this this one was cobbled together a little bit. This episode, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we only literally decided uh, what we were going to do last night, or yeah. or yeah, last night. So you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, be it's a mildly story. dangerous one. We are, we're yeah. just speaking about things that we we don't really know enough about. Yeah. And um, yeah, at risk of... I know, I mean, we're not going to say anything that's going to get us in trouble per se, but you know, like... <laughs> we might be it's, ignorant. It's, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forgive a certain degree of ignorance yeah. and expect a certain degree of speaking in generalities that you come to expect from um, our kind of like cautious somewhat, somewhat uh, mealy mouth descriptions of <laughs> <Mealy yeah>. mouth. <laughs> yeah well we're trying so, we're trying. so but i mean it, it was a good read it was a good yeah. read um mm. i i feel provoked and stimulated mm. and um yeah how did yeah. you feel uh do i feel provoked i don't know if i feel provoked i'm feeling yeah, somewhat stimulated as well. Mm. Um, this was interesting. I um, so we read Moisha Pastone's famous essay, "Anti-Semitism and National Socialism." Um, we'd been thinking about reading this essay for a long time, but again, it's very short. So we were kind of like, "How are we going to make this one work?" Um, my original idea, which didn't come to pass for a number of reasons was to read this and then also read an essay that cosmonaut published called anti-postone which is kind of like a criticism or maybe not a criticism i haven't read it so i have no idea a response to this um and kind of like weigh the merits of both that essay is impossible basically to get a hold of if you live in england so we didn't read it um so we've just read this um and yeah i actually really enjoyed it it's funny it's not quite what i thought it was going to be basically like this is an essay that's trying to figure out, trying to parse through all of the different particularities and nuances of the kind of what Postone calls the like modern anti-Semitism that arose under Germany in the Third Reich, right? Under Nazi Germany and, and its relationship to national socialism and um, kind of trying to set I don't know, set the record straight. That's what like all academic essays are trying to do, but like kind of trying to give some nuance to where this like seemingly historically unprecedented um, era of just violence and, you know, just like extermination came from Um, because it is still like, you know, however many years after the fact, like it is still such a fucking just like shocking period of history to think about um i say however many years ago still wasn't really that long ago i mean i literally walk by like a bomb crater on my way up to work every day you know what i mean it's like oh yeah like there are people who remember all of this shit um so it's pretty grim in that sense i also finished an incredibly like unnerving and um uh 
kind of fairly vile fiction book right before I finished that or right before I started reading this. And then I read this and I was just like, I don't do it. Am I depressed? I think I'm actually pretty depressed right now. Um, it doesn't leave you feeling particularly good, but you would kind of be suspicious of any essay trying to dive into these topics that did leave you feeling good. Um, but yeah, it's, re it's really, really interesting. He goes into some really interesting stuff about commodity fetishism. He goes into some really interesting stuff about like criticizing leftists and other Marxists for their takes on um, not just the Holocaust, but on anti-Semitism in general. And he gives some really interesting, very thought-provoking takes. And I mean, you know, I know that this is a controversial essay, not so much because of the content, but because a lot of people disagree with Poststone on his conclusions here. Um, but for if, you know, if for nothing else, I think read this just because it is very thought provoking. And yeah, it's left me thinking. I'll say that. I don't know where I stand, but it's definitely left me thinking. So in that sense, it's good. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I approached it um, knowing that I wasn't necessarily getting the full context. I know that it's quite controversial. I know that discussions of um, sort of discussions of, but sort of like, descriptions of the place of anti-semitism in contemporary society um touches a lot of um controversies on the present day left and it provokes a lot of um defensive responses so i feel like in some respects um that is something that stand but stands behind a lot of the um antipathy i suppose toward this essay um and also he, he makes some particularly um, strong historical claims about the nature of um, what he refers to as sort of like modern anti-Semitism as opposed to some kind of like the, the anti-Semitism that um, early capitalism inherited from the pre-capitalist world kind of thing. And he's sort of making this strong distinction and setting um, modern anti-Semitism, by which we mean the anti-Semitism of the beginning of the 20th century, um, and associated particularly in this essay with um, the rise and the, um, I suppose, uh, social and political actions. That's a very, uh, very light way of phrasing it, but like the, the particularly associated with the National Socialist Party in Germany is the context for this essay, and obviously the, the Holocaust. Um, but I, I think the first thing to say really is he's making what feels like a very abstract argument on some levels and it's a very short essay and he very deliberately skips over some, um, some historical exposition that he says you could do and is there, but he doesn't touch on. One of the things that I'm not very sure of is how much he elaborates this argument further in ways which might be in other essays or in other talks which might be more provocative or more troubling to certain people but um i can see why some elements of what he's saying here um would meet with pushback but i i appreciate the general nature of uh what he's saying particularly um with respect to what you were saying about um, his discussion of commodity fetishism and his discussion of the relationship between um, how, the, I guess, the nature of social relations and how they're constructed by sort of like capitalist relations of production and the, the sort of like general abstract arguments that Marx makes around the nature of the commodity and value and, um, and how they affect 
um, broader social relations, I guess. And I think it, there's a there's an interesting critique for the left more broadly. You know, like he, what he's identifying for me that I find really interesting is a um, what could be taken could be it could be extrapolated to be of a generalized critique of a certain type of anti-capitalism that should be um avoided i suppose but uh, we can get onto that as we discuss further yeah i mean it's interesting just i guess say right off the bat like this is you know an interesting time to be talking about this as well for fairly obvious reasons mm-hmm. um and it's interesting like ever since we read you said right before this you're like maybe this is just kind of like ha- maybe this has a lot of the tropes of a lot of kind of left communist critiques of you know certain historical issues political issues whatever um and when i was reading this i was thinking about the lauren goldner the introduction to the lauren goldner essay that we read on turkey and about turkish anti-imperialism where he was basically saying like how quickly a lot of left wingers tend to give very like uncritical support to certain movements just because they happen to be um anti-imperialist in some vague sense or they happen to be fi- they have to be fighting against america so they must be good or they have to be fighting against somewhere in europe so they must be good um and he gave the example right of like hezbollah and hamas specifically hezbollah i think where he was like okay hezbollah is fighting against israel that doesn't make them good that doesn't make them like a party worthy of revolutionary the support of the masses right and he gives the example where he is like because anti-semitism and this kind of modern anti-semitism is literally enshrined on like you know certain of their banners and that's like it's the same thing with um the houthi movement in yemen where it's like yeah okay it's like kind of cool to see like tankers bound for israel or like any tankers involved with like anything kind of remotely to do with imperialism broadly defined being stopped shall we say like at the gulf or something like that or at the red sea but um at the end of the day it's like i don't know you do see a lot of overlooking of certain kinds of structural anti-semitism um specifically in these movements um it's and it's like lauren goldner said right it's like um uh the noun tends to outdo the adjective and things like critical support and so this essay then got me thinking a lot about that and about how anti-semitism still very clearly plays a role this modern anti-semitism in a lot of um not just mainstream political movements even if they don't realize it but in a lot of left-wing movements too whether people realize it or not um this kind of like very dramatic othering of the abstract um so this was this was definitely worth reading um but yeah i guess with that we should just get into it um where does he start he basically starts by kind of giving you the overview of how he kind of says there are kind of two main streams of thought when it comes to viewing the Holocaust and viewing the anti-Semitism and of the National Socialist Party and its relationship, their relationships to each other. He basically says that there's like the liberal conservative one and there's the left wing one, right? And he says that the liberal one uh, is really quick to be to talk about the discontinuity between then and now about how there couldn't possibly be any connections to the anti-Semitism of um, the Nazi party and, you know, modern veins of anti-Semitism. Um, and most importantly, they kind of explain away that anti-Semitism is just a scapegoat ideology. Right. Um, which is kind of what you get taught in school, you know, which is funny because it's kind of also a little bit 
similar to like the official Nazi line about like fifth column stuff or whatever. And then he says there's the left view of anti-Semitism and its relationship to the Nazi party, which is that it was, you know, they're they're quick to stress the kind of so-called anti-capitalist nature of this anti-Semitism, but also they view it as kind of peripheral to um, the Nazi movement, whereas Pistone is coming out and saying, no, it's actually at the core of the Nazi movement. Um, and it wasn't just another type of prejudice. He basically says it was a different beast altogether. And he's like, if you don't understand that, then you're not only not going to understand modern anti-Semitism as it still exists, but you're not going to understand the Nazi party at all. And um, yeah, I found that at least fairly convincing. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think in some ways, one of the very provocative points that he's making, right, is that like, um, uh, he is... Um, the idea that um, it's not simply here that a um, a minority group is being scapegoated. I mean, obviously, the, the generalized left wing uh, understanding of the rise of the Nazis and their ascension to power in Germany is that they kind of like allied with the broader, more mainstream liberal and conservative capitalist class to sort of save capitalism um and to defeat uh the the working class of germany and that that and then to defeat the working classes more broadly across europe um and that it was a like broadly reactionary um uh, a reactionary movement against uh, a growing ascendant working class kind of thing um and the the point that Pistone is sort of making is that from from the side of the left, it kind of like um, it the the failure that he's saying the left is making is seeing what the what the Nazis do to European Jewry and the sort of effort at total extermination. Um, they mistake it as being something that's kind of like functional, something that's sort of like is designed to meet some other kind of end. And so obviously sort of left-wing responses will um, quite rightly sort of like, they won't sort of like downplay or hide um, the horrors of the Holocaust, but they'll sort of like point out uh, what, what, um, what the Holocaust and what the death camps and what the Nazi rule in Germany meant for the German left or like the sort of Roma gypsy population or LGBT populations or what have you. So they're sort of like broaden it out and it's not to sort of lessen the horror of that effort, but um, the effort made by the, um, the, the Nazi party in Germany. Um, but Pistone is pushing back against that and he's saying there is something particular about what the extermination of the Jews in the Holocaust means to um, the the Nazis beyond simply being something functional. It sort of like seems in his reading to represent something which is designed to be a means, a goal in and of itself. And kind of what he's trying to do with this essay is explain what is it that's driving that um that effort what is it that underlies what kind of like theory of knowledge almost what kind of epistemology is it that underlies that um underlies that thrust and he sort of like he makes some quite provocative claims right he sort of like 
he suggests almost generalistically um, that there is something very mechanistic about this effort and all the effort to eradicate the European Jews and um, that mechanistic nature almost um, it almost doesn't include I think at one point he says that it almost isn't doesn't appear malicious almost it doesn't it doesn't um it's not doesn't seem to be motivated by in his reading a sort of like psychology of hate um and this is one of the things that he's saying that sort of differentiates what he's identifying as modern antisemitism from um antisemitisms that pre-exist it right is that um those are motivated by something like pogroms or something were um he says sort of motivated by some particular moment of conflict or what have you whereas um the nazis effort in germany was something much more general i suppose um yeah, yeah. and i mean it, you know i i think that he also wouldn't downplay like the savagery and violence of you know pogroms that obviously did take place at the beginning of the holocaust but what he's trying to focus on is the kind of totality of the kind of almost like it's almost like the protestant work ethic this is a very grim way of describing it but it's like the protestant work ethic applied to genocide it was just purely mechanical emotionless and as you say the end unto itself right um and i mean i think this one of the things actually we should have done if we hadn't decided on reading this literally last night was um we could have gone back to the um Paul Maddox stuff that we read about um, his analysis of fascism, because I think that this could do with a more structural kind of like long durée of capitalism. Where does fascism find itself in the big trends of capitalism that led to this um, to kind of give it a bit more, maybe like weight, if that makes sense. Um, but I, I, I do think that you're right to kind of focus on what he says that the Holocaust was not because that's kind of how he begins this to kind of give you all of these different reasons and things that the Holocaust wasn't right. Like he says that it wasn't done for military reasons or for territorial expansion. Like you see in certain genocides in the new world, right? Um, it wasn't done to like, he gives the examples of, you know, specific segments of the Polish population that weren't Jewish in Poland, obviously. Um, who were eradicated because they were centers, hotbeds of resistance, right? And that made kind of conquest of the Polish population within that territorial area easier. He said that this was done for a completely different reason. And I mean, on one hand, like I, I do understand what he's saying. I'm kind of interested to know what you actually think on this. Like, what do you think about him comparing this to something like the genocides of the new world, specifically in the United States? On, on one hand, I do understand what he's saying. But on the other hand, I think it would be hard not to look at the genocide of the Native American populations and see that pretty clearly as like an end to itself in most circumstances, like as recently as like the end of the 19th century, um, maybe even actually beginning of the 20th, California was offering uh, bounties for every head that you bought in, in Northern California, right? Like at a certain point, yeah, it's like, certain bands were given reservations to live on but most weren't you know what i mean like when you look at actual population levels especially in like south america as well and in central america like you wouldn't necessarily compare it to the kind of commodity 
thing that we'll get on to that he brings up here about how it's kind of like an element of capitalism itself. But like, I don't know, I was a little bit unsure about what he was saying there. Yeah, I feel like one. this is one of the things that um, people criticize about this essay from from the little bit of research that I did. And I guess mind this is coming back to what I was saying about this of being like a generally abstract argument. I feel like while I have some sympathy for the effort that he's trying to make, the starkness of the distinction that he makes between this particular genocide and other genocides or um, forms of mass killing that we've seen throughout modern history, um, the sort of starkness of the distinction that he makes is somewhat um, uh, troubling, I suppose, now, I guess what I would say is it's probably the case that in uh, similar to what you were just alluding to or what you were just saying, like it's probably the case that in all of these instances, both of these dynamics are at play. Um, both the sort of like functionalist means to an end and also a certain um, a certain end in itself kind of thing going on. Now, I feel like I... What I'm, I'm able to do is um, argue one side of this and not the other, by which I mean, um, obviously, he makes some statements about like, the, he'll say, he says, like, the killing of Native Americans was um, the genocide of North American uh, Native, Native Americans was a land grab by the United States. And he sort of identifies that as being functional. But then I guess what you were just saying within that there are these um the the bounties or what have you that sort of like do feel like a very mechanistic um type of genocide that was going on um and I feel like you can look at certain things in the holocaust say the use of Jewish slave labor by German capitalism or the appropriation of um or the theft i suppose of uh the personal belongings of jews that were sent to the death camps as being um a very functionist the functional appropriation of wealth i suppose um so I, I i might be wrong but i feel like although i appreciate in some respects the dichotomy he's identifying um i guess i'm not well enough versed with the history of um genocide and mass killings virt like of like um which i'm glad about really like <laughs> i'm sort of like there's a reason why i don't i'm not an expert in that but um i'm not well enough versed in that history to know exactly like the historical inaccuracies or what have you of the argument that's being made so i suppose suffice here to say that is the argument that he's putting forward whether that's in an abstractified form because like he does make the point that like he says that he's not um this isn't a direct quote but he says something to the effect that like he's not trying to sideline um sort of psychosocial or psychoanalytic descriptions of either particular pathologies of people or social pathologies that may have motivated these i.e from the standpoint of like sort of like social tension or uh malice or hate or what have you um but rather he's trying to sort of like uh describe um 
a sort of like uh, a higher epistemology that overhangs that kind of like um, either personal or collective psychology, I suppose. So he's sort of identifying a um, uh, a distinction between the two and maybe unfairly or incorrectly focusing on one and not the other. But um, yeah, who are we to I, mean, say? I, think... I suppose whether that's legitimate or not. Who are we to say? Who are we to say? Please, I mean, please don't, yeah. please don't, please don't take us too seriously ever. I think, in his defense, I guess after what I just said, I will say that this, his explanation, again, I keep saying this, but that we'll get on to when he gets to his analysis of the commodity form, that does seemingly make the Holocaust pretty unique. And if that is his point, then okay, I do agree with it. But I do think that maybe if someone were to misread this, I don't know who would do that, and read what he's saying as. Um, this was the only kind of genocide that we can think of that was done purely out of this kind of like abstractified malice of, um, you know, kind of exactly what we're saying, like as an ends to itself, um, then I think maybe that wouldn't be true. But I, yeah, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that that isn't actually what he's saying. Um, I guess maybe we should explain a bit about what we mean or what he means when he uses the term modern anti-Semitism. He, he really takes pains to be like, this is not, just everyday prejudice he's like this is something this is a completely different beast um and he basically says that modern anti-semitism basically claims to explain the entire world and all of its mysteries um and all of its weird fetishes and all of the things that confuse you about exploitation and domination it's a totalizing theory right it's like why you'll see some conspiracy theorist tiktok people be like you know um uh wow, there's this mysterious force that, uh, you know, forces us to like, puts profit above all and it's seemingly inhuman and what could it be? And you're like, oh, what are they about to say? And then they go, oh, it's the Jews. And you go, oh, okay, this is, oh, okay, great. <laughs> so close yeah. and yet so, so, so far so, away. Exactly, but so far away. Um, and he basically says that for the Nazis, this kind of modern anti-Semitism was a actual conspiracy that was going on it didn't have the potential to become something else which is another thing that i was a little bit like well i think you could also find many prejudices certainly like in america about immigrants like immigrants from latin america the racist bullshit that people say about them does seem to be like there's an active conspiracy about them somehow they're they're they are ruining the country but it doesn't quite get to this level i suppose of abstract explaining the world even if some just syphilitic brain rotted republicans try to pretend like immigrants somehow explain you know the woes of the united states and the fall of an empire um during the iowa caucus i think it was the iowa caucus fox maybe it was fox maybe it was cnn i don't know some bullshit news channel had like uh uh poll of their viewers and a poll it wasn't the viewers it was a poll of people going to vote at the caucuses and they were like what's the number one most like important issue for you and like far and away it was illegal immigration and it's like my dude you live in iowa like what are you talking about <laughs> like chill out <laughs> it's like economic crisis was like 30 percent lower it's just like oh my god um but yeah i mean just to bring it back this is this is the first building block of why he explains the specificity of the Holocaust and um, making the distinction between kind of medieval forms of anti-Semitism, which were very much just a kind of othering 
kind of your run-of-the-mill typical racist bullshit you don't understand this person xenophobia kind of thing whereas this was like oh no this is what's wrong with the world this is all of the woes of industrial capitalism it comes from this right yeah i mean yeah there are two things to respond to one um we'll get onto more broadly i think is what's very interesting about this and what what one of the things that really interests me is what's hidden in this is like the general structure of conspiracy in that's relevant today to 21st century um discourse and the zeitgeist like a great many conspiracies are structured like this um and i mean a great many of those those uh uh conspiracy theories that we have now that are structured like this may well hold the figure of the jew or something similar to that in a particular in, in a very similar position within their um, structure so that one of the things that's really interesting about this essay for sure and then yeah this is this, this, the this is the first starting off point for how we begin to transition in this essay from a discussion of um what it is that's specific about modern anti-semitism as he identifies it and then we sort of transition into um how that is a sort of like outgrowth of the ideological i suppose social structure of the capitalist mode of production itself and how one reflects the other in what he thinks are and what are i think admittedly interesting parallels yeah um yeah it's this sort of distinct distinction between like some groups have a sort of potential power that is like a present but threatening but um he, he sort of he distinguishes between like potential and like actual power almost um and he's identifying a very particular and unique type of power which is um uh bestowed upon european jews by the nazis and other fascist movements um as being somehow sort of abstract and universal and as um sort of being behind all the ills um all the ills that beset sort of like mid or early to mid century um germany um one of the things that he's trying to identify is like how is it that or, or rather why is it that in the nazi imaginary the jews both seem to stand behind the sort of like uh the decadence of uh, Western finance capital and bankers and all of this kind of stuff, but also seem to stand behind the figure of the Bolsheviks and the sort of like Eastern menace of communism, you know, like, um, and what he's saying is like, uh, this, that form of antisemitism doesn't necessarily see the figure of the Jew as being an active participant in what it is as, that is being identified as problematic with modern society, but rather the thing that stands abstractly behind um, the ills of um, sort of like modern bourgeois society. So I think that's the difference between like um, actual and potential power, like um, the the threat of the sort of unknown abstract menace rather than something which is actively... Um, interfering in the otherwise potentially harmonious nature of society i guess 
Yeah, and it, and it makes sense too, right, for him to make this distinction between kind of like old feudal ideas of anti-Semitism about just like money lending, I guess, right, and um, modern anti-Semitism because of exactly what you're saying, right? It's like you can't just explain it away as that because then how could you explain this like, you know, Judeo-Bolshevism argument? right as about like i like how he gave the example of there were the jewish bolsheviks but then there were also like fat cat english bankers so it's like oh yeah yes the similar people i mean fucking like bakunin famously said this right he had like some anti-semitic conspiracy about bankers on one side like finance capital on one side and then marks on the other side it's like yeah okay yeah right that totally makes sense dude um I, i wanted to touch just a little bit on what you were saying about the kind of um psychological approaches that a lot of people take to explaining the Holocaust and its anti-Semitism's intrinsic link to Nazism. Because like I watched um, some Adam, not Adam Silver. What's the guy's name? Adam Curtis. <laughs> Adam Silver. Adam Silver is the commissioner of the NBA. Adam Curtis <laughs> movie. The one where he um, talks about Joseph Goebbels and then the guy, the propaganda guy, right? Edward Bernays and kind of draws, you know, parallels between the two. And one of the arguments that kind of falls flat is that like this kind of mass hatred that was born out of Nazism was, you, you know, you could kind of explain as like Joseph Goebbels, like, you know, pulling the wool over everybody's eyes, this master of propaganda and just putting people under this spell. Right. And that kind of just buys into like, certain kinds of even like post-World War II propaganda about like, well, you know, like once everybody found out what was going on in the concentration camps, then, you know, then they really felt bad about it. But it's like, well, no, like actually the entire kind of fucking country that was left at the end knew what was going on and they actively supported it. So how could that possibly be? Right. And that argument just doesn't, the psychological argument just doesn't explain everything. It just, it just very obviously doesn't like, you need to understand why, there was a need for this, why that came about, what it was that that was serving, that kind of rabid anti-Semitism. And then as Poston says, once you have that framework, then you can put the psychological stuff into perspective. How was it that the, you know, propaganda of the Nazi party was so effective? How did it whip people up into this fury? And how do people's like, you know, psychological, uh, how did their responses react to this? And why were they okay with all this stuff? But you can't just start from there because- you would just have to keep asking the question, why? Why did that happen, right? Sure, sure, sure. Um, I feel like the final thing to point out before we try and tackle this idea of um, uh, sort of commodity fetishism being behind uh, modern anti-Semitism, so-called, is simply to talk about the thing that he points out about um, other efforts that have been made to describe anti-Semitism, or rather Nazi anti-Semitism, along similar lines, but as he says, haven't quite fully grasped uh, what was going on. And he points out certain people who have identified like maybe Nazism was a response to modernity in general, um, or um, it was a pushback purely against like... um, uh, moneyed interest and sort of money and circulation and the identify and the identification of European Jewry purely with that sort of like portion of um, capitalism um, and the one the one he sets his sights on particularly is this idea of well maybe 
Nazism is a reaction to modernity and all of the things associated with modernity, um, which ought, if that were the argument, which ought also include um, industry, technology and factory production. Um, And the thing that he points out is like the Nazis had no issue with that at all. It wasn't it wasn't like they were totally backward looking in the sense that they I mean, in a lot of respects, they like championed technology. They had this sort of like purely very, very much very purely positivistic um uh almost sort of and and, it, and it's reflected in the kind of like um scientific biological approach that also lay behind lots of like arguments around um i don't know like race politics of the era you know and, and euthanasia and these kind of concepts so there was a real like um modernist um bent to this particular type of um, anti-Semitism, which happily championed factory production industry, um, in some ways did speak to um, and sort of like incorporated into its imagery, you know, the like the industrial worker and um, obviously the Aryan industrial worker in this context, but like isn't dissimilar to like... um, Bolshevik championing of the worker, I guess. Um, and then we can get onto this later, the degree to which like Nazism was an anti-capitalist uh, movement and how much how significant the word socialism is to national socialism and how people have reflected on that. I think we should leave that to the end, perhaps. But like um in general, there is also this element of like um uh, one of the things that he's seeking to answer is why is it also that the national socialist party in germany is so at ease with uh, the nature of bourgeois production and its sort of concrete appearance in the factory form kind of thing yeah form and appearance dan mm. that's why form mm. and appearance um, i mean it's, yeah it's all good and well as saying form and appearance <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we've explained it form yeah and there we go <laughs> <laughs> i did what you did for one of our episodes recently and i did a little doodle of uh you know, exchange value on one side and the use value on the other side. And then I just did cascading uh, little flow charts. Um, basically, what underlays Postone's analysis here is Marx's analysis of the commodity, basically, right? It's the twofold nature of the commodity. And it's this idea that there's the form that capitalism takes that we kind of see and that we can kind of attempt to understand and that we think kind of explains the way it works to us. You can think money, the commodity, things like this, the things that we actually see. Whereas there's this actual, like there's the essence of capitalism, which is value production. It's abstract labor. It's the kind of descending back into Plato's cave to see all of the crazy weird shit that's going on that you can't see when you, as we've said on the show before, try to crack open a commodity to find its value. Like it's all of the abstracted stuff. It's stuff that you can't find. Um, And I mean, basically what he says here is that the power that's that's attributed to Judaism in the national socialist movement and the Nazi movement, it is not a coincidence that these powers, these actual powers mimic the real powers of the actual essence of capitalism, which is value production, right? He says that Nazism portrayed Jews as in this kind of abstract way, very intangible, the power that they wielded, they had this universality 
because you know they seemed to exist everywhere in many different countries all over the world um and mobility right and postones like these are all words that you would use to describe the actual essence of capitalism which is value right um i found this very um compelling and it's left me thinking i mean <laughs> yeah i finished reading this technically like this morning so i haven't had a whole lot of time to let it compost in my mind but like it's a the theory of commodity fetishism is something that you can apply to quite a bit of capitalist ideology and i'm kind of like smacking myself on the head being like well, yeah why wouldn't you apply this to you know to an analysis of modern anti-semitism because it seems perfectly apt and it is so interesting in all of these fucking stupid, like, bigoted arguments that you find, whether it's about immigrants, whether it's about Judaism, whether it's about, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, China, right? Like, all of the words that are used to describe whoever is being described, they all basically mimic the essence of capitalism, which, um, which yeah, I buy it. It's, it's very, very, it's apt analysis. Grim. I mean, yeah, this it, it seems, I think... For me to describe very well the sort of anti-capitalist nature of um, anti-Semitism as described in this essay. What's also really interesting to me, as I think I alluded to earlier, is just how more generally applicable this kind of critique is of anti-capitalist movements in general. Like you can look across um, uh, like um, left-wing progressive socialist anti-capitalism as well as romantic reactionary anti-capitalism um and and identify this kind of logic um it's yeah it's I, like i I'm, i mean i'm constantly still trying to wrestle with the degree to which i understand the idea of commodity fetishism um and the the ideas in marx around how um what the relationship is between um the sort of like concrete activity of production and how that influences the broader social relations and how those two feed back on one another. Um, I guess it's important to emphasize here from my limited understanding that what he's really identifying in some respects is, or what he's pointing out is how much one should beware of not recognizing the kind of like, um, dare I say, dialectical or contradictory relationship that exists between two um, elements which in any system are intrinsically related. Um, so in this instance, he sort of, he, um, he, start, he starts out in his argument um, discussing um, the difference between um, concrete and abstract labor um and what he suggests what he says a la marx is that those those two kind of like uh contradictory elements as we know like one which produces like the useful qualities of things that we encounter in the world like sort of like concrete use values that we experience every day and another which is like um uh which sort of is um uh the the measure or rather the substance of the sort of abstract value that exists in commodities and allows for the generalized exchange in capitalist society. Um, 
And he's saying that sort of those two almost contradictory elements are sort of synthesized together. They're objectified um, in the commodity. And um, obviously what results from that is a kind of like um, a generalized loss of power, uh, 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 a... In sort of like a line of thinking that happens which says things that are actually within our control aren't within our control at all and they're actually features of nature you know like um economic crisis becomes things that we can't really understand or um the uh, nature of our relationships to other human beings become confused and distracted because they're experienced as purely as economic relations and with all the kind of like social conflict that ensues from that um and coming back to what we were saying before about like the complicated nature of the world that's being reacted to by simplistic arguments brought forward by conspiracy theorists that sort of like try and explain um uh, a world that is that's otherwise quite difficult to understand and explain um and sort of creating a simplified um explanation for that and he's saying that what the um the National Socialists do in Germany, although this argument could be applied to anybody, is identify themselves with the virtuous good nature of um, commodity production, of the production of useful things that are seen to be concrete and real, um, and sort of like create this false dichotomy between the sort of like the bad, the money form of capital, the um, the they sort of like pit the exchange value against the use value and try and champion one and try and sort of like eradicate the other. And what he's saying is happening in in Germany is kind of like a personification of a particular group of people with the exchange value, the money side of this equation, which represents the sort of abstract, mysterious, ephemeral, um, and that's coming back to what I was saying before. That's why they're so at ease with um, the industrial production that that is synonymous with mid twentieth century, earlier twentieth century capitalism. Is that they're quite happy with like commodities and how they're produced. Um, but of course, Bassone is saying, well, for Marx, the commodity. It's the very nature of capitalism that the commodity and value transitions between its sort of like material form in the commodity and its sort of abstracted form in money. It's a constant back and forth of these two. The two are intrinsically related and you can't um, separate them both. But like the, the, the Nazis, but other people vain sort of like try and do that um, to I mean, more and less reformist. horrific... Sorry? reformists do that well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Everybody. like he, everybody does yeah everybody yeah. i mean does but this. yeah i mean you, you just go go back to the language of like that sort of anti-banker language around the the um the occupy movement you know it's like it's good industrial workers good honest yeah. salt of the earth workers should be protected and it's the bad bankers that, that it's the one percent it's not know? yeah it's not even yeah. that it's just the one percent it's yeah. just like the people who own the most wealth which yeah, is yeah. just completely looking past the actual domination of capital. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it even extends to um, the distinction between making an argument whereby there are bad capitalists 
or there is just the generalized nature of the capitalist mode of production. What are we battling? Are we battling the system or are we opposed to certain um, personifications of the system in the form of certain individual capitalists? Absolutely. Now, certainly that's part of the back and forth of a political movement is to like disempower or sideline a certain section of one class versus another like you have to fight that portion of the battle but you also have to be mindful that like um it's not the big capitalists that are bad you know it's not i mean he makes he makes very specific critique of like proudhon in this and sort of proudhon's idea that maybe we, if we were all just like small-scale producers then you could, you could have market thing. socialism right like yeah. money is the bad thing or like scale is the bad thing um yeah yeah well i mean it's fuck it's i hate to say it but it's also a certain type of leninism economically which is to say general cartel hilferding stuff right Mm -hmm. like and there's one famous section of the first volume of capital where marx is like he ends a chapter for some reason pretending that he's a worker talking to his boss and he says this line that's something along the lines of hey man you might be a great guy and he says like you might be a member of the society for the prevention of cruelty to animals I don't give a fuck because when I confront you, I'm not actually confronting you. I'm confronting capital in its most grievous form, right? And it, and it's a similar, it goes the other way around too. Like capitalists aren't in control of their own destinies, just like we aren't, right? Um, and I really found this a really, really excellent way of understanding why it is that certain types of just left politics and like specifically don't work. It's because on they're either hypostasizing or fetishizing the concrete or the abstract, which is to say, you know, like certain liberals like to, you know, fetishize the abstract and they say that capitalist relations have always existed, right? Whereas somebody like Proudhon likes to just say, ah, it's just money, money's the bad thing, or, you know, oh, it's just um, reformism. It's just, well, these things just need to be distributed equally. If only we got rid of Elon Musk, Twitter would be fine, right? As opposed to if you got rid of one capitalist, another one would take their place immediately. It doesn't really matter. Um, or we yeah. just have to break up the tech monopolies and then... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- this stuff is really excellent. And I, I will say, like, for the listener, this is one of the most elegant and, like, succinct explanations of commodity fetishism that you're going to find in here which I wasn't expecting. I kind of mm-hmm. like knew the, the general thrust of his argument, but I wasn't expecting it to be something I understood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I, I mean, it's just perfect. He basically says that the fetish, the fetish of capital allows for everything to be viewed as entirely separate from capital, right? It's like even the commodity, it's not, it's purely material. It's not this mediator of social relations, um, which is something that many kind of communists, I think still think, unfortunately, um, and, and all of this to tie it back is to basically say that there was this confusion going on. The rise of industrial capitalism alienated a lot of people, right? Obviously, it continues to. It threw people into really shitty cities. It made people live very cramped lives. Nobody understood really what was happening. Again, it very clearly wasn't just their bosses. It must be something else. But because of the nature of commodity fetishism, because you can't crack open the table and look at the gooey essence of value, right? Like, and because money and commodities seem like very real things that just are what they are, as opposed to things that are mystifying the social relationship um, of capitalism, the social relations of capitalism, it's impossible, basically, to just see on the face of it 
what is really going on in capitalism, which is that we are being governed by an alien force. We are being governed by this force that is entirely outside of our control, that forces production to control us as opposed to us controlling production. All of us workers, capitalists, everybody, we're all at the whims of capital. Um, but here, the Third Reich, the National Socialists, they confused or just projected all of this i guess that's the big question uh all of this onto european jewry and um to very disastrous consequences that's kind of why pastone says that there's something extremely unique about this modern form of bigotry which is modern anti-semitism something that you rarely find elsewhere and history has kind of vindicated that i mean again like you just go look at the way that anybody talks about Israel and Gaza. Like this should just be so straightforward. It should just be very clearly an imperialist war, an invasion of uh of the Palestinians' land. It should be so straightforward, but it gets so messed up with like, well, you know, Mossad has all of these connections to the CIA, and like actually there's like this deep state dude, and there's all this stuff going on. It's just like, oh my fucking God, holy shit. Like yeah, it's it's everywhere. It's disgusting. And I mean the phrase structural anti-Semitism is very useful and very apt, I would say, because mm -hmm. this this projection of the real nature of capitalism onto other things to disastrous, bigoted consequences, yeah, it is everywhere, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess this is one of the things that I sort of um, understand as being a critique leveled at Pastone. Is he's saying that like there is something potentially anti-Semitic about uh, anti-capitalism in general which is clearly not what is being said here and i don't know i mean i don't know all of the things he said on this and i'm particularly ignorant on all of the responses that people have said to this um but there is definitely a worthwhile there's something worthwhile in the notion of something being structurally anti-semitic i.e it's not necessarily anti-semitic but it's like it's following this logic of not a sort of like um sort of trying to escape the the binary but settling on one side and all the other well settling on one side rather than like sort of destroying the binary in general as our left communist friends might want to do like uh, the role of the working class is to abolish itself not to yeah. like i don't know so yeah i mean one of the things that i come away from this asking is um, how should we reflect upon the idea or the nature or the historical event of the Holocaust in light of this? I don't like, I wonder whether it's actually easier. It certainly is easier, I guess, to imagine that the people of Germany were duped by a certain evil group of. Which is actually the same argument, right? Yeah, they were duped by is. an evil, evil collection <laughs> of Nazis and otherwise didn't know what was happening. Now, maybe they didn't know the ins and outs. Maybe they weren't there, like, actively participating in the Holocaust kind of thing. But it's a much more terrifying notion to think that um, uh, a certain logic could take hold in society one that is a very which is a clear outgrowth of a certain response to the development of capitalism that could take hold take hold so thoroughly that it could do something so wicked um 
it's more scary, I think. Um, and it's just something I'm sort of beginning to realize now and reckon with that like, and also it's, it's made me more sympathetic to like a certain hysteria that you hear now of like, are we slipping into it again? You know, like, um, not the same thing, like fascism isn't coming back in the same form, but like under conditions of economic crisis, under conditions of declining living standards, under the pressures of like global warming, um, the the warning that the 1930s gives us is um, sort of terrifying, horrific social phenomena can emerge or almost organically out of society. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what that tells us yeah. we should do or not I mean, do. I mean, the only like other than the obvious, just like conspiratorial anti-semitic shit that you see all over the place online which i don't want to like brush past because it is obviously like a very real problem it seems like if anything like this is coming back it will have to do with immigration um in the united states obviously from kind of either central or south america um in europe from middle east to north africa as climate change worsens worsens as um you know political instability is formed. But the interesting thing is like when you hear racists talk about like, I don't know, say, I won't use America as an example for this because maybe it is actually more similar to modern anti-Semitism. but you hear like racists talk about people coming from like Syria or like Kurdistan mm. or something it's, like that. It's kind right? of like small boats, like people crossing yeah, the Yeah, and it's like people crossing the channel. Or yeah, like... it's almost like petty boars walking. It's like they're coming to steal my shit and live off the dole. You know what I mean? It's like, fuck, live off the dole. What the fuck do I care? Sure, go live off As the dole. If anybody what? can live off the dole. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have you tried? I wish I could fucking live off the dole. God damn it. But it's like, so I, I don't know. Uh, I could eat these words. I don't necessarily see that coming. But maybe it would just have to be more top down just because modern states maybe aren't, this is a grim thought, but maybe aren't actually uh, set up to um, deal with the amount of population changes that we're in exchange, not exchanges, they're going to be pretty much one way that we're going to see in the coming decades and in the coming century, I guess. But in the United States, maybe it is a different question because you do see Republicans and Democrats too. Biden gave up on this like immediately after his first year. Um you do see them spinning bullshit about like uh, immigration is the cause of the destruction of this great empire, right? Illegal immigrants. They're the ones that are coming in here and destroying things, which other than obviously just being bullshit is like, yeah, seems fairly fascist, I will say, in the kind of postonian meaning. If, if they are projecting the ills of capitalism onto like a family crossing the Rio Grande trying to pick through uh barbed wire it's like i don't know that is worrying <laughs> you know so i don't know we'll see i mean yeah there's definitely there are definitely parallels between what i was just describing as the psychology that was taking over people in germany in the 30s and some of the ways in which people in this country speak about yeah immigrants whether they're wherever they're yeah, I don't know. It's not even yeah. like worth repeating. Uh, yeah, how horrible some of the language is. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, capitalism is only becoming more beset by crises that it's not in a position to solve. Um, and yeah, people people 
people might seek to explain that mysterious force mm. yeah um, in some place other than uh, like reading a, a thorough, a, a reading capital and a thorough, critique of, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a thorough exactly. critique of the capitalist mode of production and Next time I come across some racist chat, I'm just going to hand him a copy of Isaac Rubin's book on value theory and be like, you just have to read the first section on commodity fetishism. You don't have to read the rest. I mean, there's one, the one last thing I'll say on this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I say to the like petty bourgeois, like Taco Bell franchise owner. Um, The one last thing I'll say on this, and if we wanted to somehow apply this now, is that there, Pistone's, the last thing that Pistone basically says that we haven't bought up one of the main things is why modern anti-semitism had to be anti-semitism why it had to be why national socialism was intrinsically linked not just to bigotry in general but to jews specifically like because he was like if this was a class thing you would have expected like if this was really like some sort of you know, like class, you know, antagonism, you would have expected to see just Jewish business owners or bankers or whatever being arrested, but you didn't, you saw everybody. Right. Um, and he, you know, he kind of makes the point he's like, this comes out of old antisemitism around like, uh, the fact that in central Europe, emancipation of the Jewish population was very sudden and it happened really kind of relatively recently. Like it happened in the latter third, he said, of the 19th century. And he basically just said that all of a sudden, Jewish people were allowed to go to university. They were allowed to serve in the civil service. They were allowed to become doctors. They were allowed to do whatever. And so he said that this kind of led to, because this was happening at the exact same time as the rise of industrial capitalism, it led to this rise of this face of this new like version of society industrial capitalism became uh you know linked to this new group of people that seemingly didn't have a homeland it didn't come from anywhere and were very mobile and were international and were all of a sudden just popped up at the same time that everybody started working in factories um and so he said that that's kind of why it had to be anti-semitism which you know that yeah i also buy that i think that that's very true it's interesting for him to draw the through line of older versions of anti-semitism in this modern one that he paints the picture of as opposed to just being what i kind of thought he was doing at the beginning which was saying they're two completely different things he does say that it definitely evolved into this which is interesting yeah he sort of he introduces a new um sort of binary um sort of contradictory relationship between in in 19th century europe there was this sort of new binary between um the state and civil society between like the citizen who is a member of the state and like the person, the con- this distinction between the abstract citizen and the concrete person. Um, and he says that there's something about the complex relationship between how those two elements of modernity sat side by side one another that, um, uh, where the binary wasn't clear and separate, but there was sort of this this merging between the two, and as you say, it was this sort of like um, somewhat nationless character of European Jewry that allowed them to be associated as like abstract citizens. Sure, they were like citizens of Germany or France, but like, did they exist in the in the civil society? There was a there was a uh, um, 
a logic associated with anti-Semitism that found itself able to say no, and to some extent, therefore, they were not concrete persons. They were just abstract outsiders to some extent. So there is another element of like modernity that identifies as being behind this, behind that allows anti-Semitism or allows um, not uh, the anti-Semitism to develop into the Holocaust as as it happened, I guess. Yeah, that's the only that's the only thing that gives me like worry about the future. Like if the modern version of modern anti-Semitism is anti-immigrant shit, then this idea of this sudden emancipation and this new group of people bursting onto the world scene in a way that they hadn't previously, that worries me a bit because it's like, I, uh, I, I don't exactly know the numbers, but I know Germany specifically has seen like, like an absolutely massive influx of, of immigrants because they're like one of the only countries that actually like bothered taking people right during the recent crises. Um, and maybe there's no surprise then that you see the rise of a party like the AFD, right? Who are attempting to explain the abstract nature of capital's domination of everything and governing of everything in society. Um, and the kind of crises that we're seeing now, which are new, like really new and really alien to people, not just climate change, but war, you know, economic crises when we're told that everything was supposed to, this was the end of history, Um they're seeking to explain that by maybe immigration, mm. which would be grim. Um, yeah. I feel like um, the other thing I feel like it's necessary to say is, although it seems unlikely that a form of modern day, I mean, by which I mean contemporary anti-Semitism could take hold across like Western countries or whatever, it's um, it's definitely not worth, it's definitely worth acknowledging like, there, there could be a place for 21st century anti-Semitism in this nexus of like um, bigotry that we're kind of identifying as being maybe the nascent um, building blocks of a new fascism. I mean, I don't really have anything to say about that. Um, mm. But yeah, I don't know. Other than that it's bad. Other, other, well, it's definitely bad. <laughs> yes. Other than that, I have one uh, new sound effect on the board, which is... <laughs> I was going to try and wait for myself to say something wrong and stupid before I used that, but I'm sure I will about value uh, theory yeah. in the future and I'll go yeah. back and play it. Plenty of opportunities. Yeah. For sure. What are you going to do? Very, very interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, everybody go read this. It's very, yeah. very good. Um, come on and in. And read fetishism. the criticisms. Go and look for criticisms. Go look like, for criticisms. What, like, yeah, yeah, we do your own thing. Endorse your us own over person. anything else. You know, it's just, don't listen to us. <laughs> we're just t- taking things on board. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, taking things on board. Um, the... Yeah, his his warning of like, don't put the concrete above the abstract or the abstract above the concrete. Think about it all dialectically is so like, it's so well explained and explicated here. It's like, and such a good warning for any kind of like political movement. Such a good litmus test. You know what I mean? It's like communism, but all we have to do is get rid of money. Communism, but we just wait for everything to monopolize and then we take control. It's like, yeah. oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's the it's the digital money that's bad. As long as it's still like paper money, it's fine. Bitcoin. We that's what I wanted. Bitcoin. That's what I wanted. So every time I encounter somebody that's annoyed about like current <laughs> digital currency and like moneyless society, I just want to fucking help. <laughs> I mean, I have some we, sympathy, uh, though, but also like read capital. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, 
Uh, there's a, I'll tell you a story about somebody who's got some conspiracy theories like that that is doing my head in after mm. we stop recording. But I love the the conspiracy theory that's like, this is the thing that makes me be like, I want to just call every conspiracy theory anti-Semitic, even if it's not like explicitly related to like Judaism or anything. Like the conspiracy theory that's like, I don't want to use my credit card. I only want to use cash because they can track me otherwise. It's like, what are you talking about? It's just like, that's the stupidest shit. Oh yeah, they can track you. I'm going to start being like, I know who you mean. Read this Moisha Pastone essay. I know exactly who you mean. That is probably who they mean, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, dear some they some abstract they abstract they mm. yeah. capital indeed what are you gonna do mm. not, right. tracking your, not tracking your mobile phone there that's fine <laughs> yeah exactly yeah that's totally fine um great great well this was not the episode that i teased last episode nope. as being like i'm really excited about this like i don't feel like an idiot for doing yeah yeah, 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 like, yeah yeah just make I'm sure i'm so everybody's excited like, about this yeah. we're talking about the holocaust yeah yeah <laughs> um maybe no, that'll be the next one <laughs> that will be the next one and i'm very stoked about it we're gonna have a great guest on to hold dan and i's hand through a complicated topic a lot so of, uh, uh, every time jack and i speak i'm sure <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah so maybe we should give our, gravity... our guest control of the our guest <laughs> control of the soundboard that's a really good idea actually <laughs> i'll be like so general relativity has been proven wrong mm. <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna do all right. Well, tune into that to hear Dan and I talk uh, shit about physics that we don't understand. That'll be very, very good. Um, until then. That that should be our new tagline. Like, Jack and Dan talk about something they don't understand. <laughs> exactly. But we're taking it all on board. I take it. <laughs> yes, yes. Marketplace of ideas. In a way. <laughs> exactly. Marketplace of ideas where we read very specific niche texts <laughs> about, like, one specific topic. What are you going to do? <laughs> We're not immune for being a sect, Dan. We're not beating the sect uh, uh, criticisms. Right. Everybody's these are sects. We're just a two-person sect. That's the yeah. difference. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see everybody next time. <laughs> see ya. Thanks, Dan. Bye-bye, Dan. Hey, everybody. Jack here. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. The song that you heard on this episode is Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. You can go ahead and check this song out much, 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 much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. If you want to go ahead and get in touch with us, chat shit, tell us that we're wrong, whatever you want to do, you can go ahead and do that at auxiliarystatements at gmail.com. You can just send us a message there. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, on Discord, on Instagram. You're a smart person. You can find these places. we got a YouTube. We post stuff there as well. Sometimes we stream. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time. Whoa.